Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. We are whistling our way through all the various contenders in this year's World Cup. And Dominic, uh, Portugal, one yeah. of our favourite countries, isn't it? We've done four episodes on the history of Portugal. And we actually left that series on a cliffhanger. We did indeed. So, bon dia, everybody. Uh, you'll be treated once again to our splendid Portuguese. We did our four-part Portuguese history series, and we did end on a cliffhanger. So, for those people who didn't listen, Tom... Why didn't they listen? Well, obviously madness. Madness, yes. I won't say stop listening to this, go back and listen to it, but <laughs> listen to this and then go back and listen to it. But this is a slight spoiler, isn't it? I mean, it you're is. kind of giving <laughs> away the end. <laughs> so we described in the final episode how since 1926, Portugal had been ruled by this extraordinary figure, Antonio Salazar, an incredibly conservative, you know, sort of openly, literally reactionary Catholic university professor who uh, who was regarded as as a sort of Portugal's great sort of economic mind and he had presided over as prime minister this regime that that some people would describe as as fascist or near fascist i don't think fascism is quite the right word because it's fascism tries to stir people up salazar was trying to sort of calm things down calm things down to the point of utter inertia indeed to actually (laughs) turn the clock back um you know he was sort of still fulminating about how terrible the reformation was in the middle of the 1960s and also wasn't it that um oil gets discovered in angola and they come rushing to tell him the good news and he says how terrible (laughs) yes exactly exactly so so salazar presided over this regime and at the end of the 1960s salazar had a stroke in august 1968 which basically marks the end of his his political hegemony but portugal was the backwater of backwaters um it was by far the sort of the poorest the most sort of uh, economically culturally backward i mean I, I, I hate to use the word but it was as though it was asleep um, in European mm-hmm. terms, while everybody else had kind of forged ahead. 
So the 60s, you know, London swinging, Swasson Wittar in Paris, throwing cobblestones at police, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Portugal's basically in, in, still in the 1860s. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, we ended that podcast by saying we would do this episode for our World Cup series about what happened next, about the end of the regime and the so-called Carnation Revolution of 1974 and the extraordinary political turmoil and turbulence that followed as Portugal became a modern democracy. So we should probably start by saying the man who takes over. So when Salazar is kind of knocked out at the end of 1968, the man who succeeds him is an old lieutenant of his, yet another incredibly reactionary kind of Catholic academic, who's a guy called Marcelo Caetano. And Caetano was a law professor. He'd been the, the rector of the University of Lisbon. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. They have this very authoritarian regime through much of the 20th century that is basically run by university professors. And Caetano is exactly that. And he has quite an unenviable inheritance. He looks like he's a bespectacled. They're all, they all look the same. They're all kind of bespectacled <laughs> men in suits. That's what he is. Um, not only is Portugal very economically backward and it's obviously politically repressive, but they're also fighting these colonial wars in Africa because Portugal, almost uniquely in Europe, has decided that it is not going to you know, give an inch to the sort of forces of colonial liberation, that it is going to hold on to its colonies. Except they say, we don't have an empire, we have a global Lucifone community. But how are they affording that? Well, this is the thing. So these wars in Africa, Tom, they're fighting particularly in Angola and Mozambique. By the time Caetano takes over at the end of the 1960s, these wars are consuming about 40% of the Portuguese budget. Now, the Portuguese budget is pretty small mm -hmm. by European standards anyway. So that gives you a kind of sense that they are, they are massively overstretching themselves to fight these wars and wars that have become increasingly bloody. So to give you just one example, in the summer of 1973, um, Caetano was due to visit Britain to mark the anniversary of the Anglo-Portuguese alliance. Yes. Our oldest ally, Portugal, something yes. we had talked about in our, at the beginning of our Portuguese series. And to his horror and embarrassment, just weeks before he comes to Britain, a British Catholic priest, Tom, I know you love a British Catholic priest, uh, <laughs> called Adrian Hastings, he exposes a massacre that has taken place in Mozambique at a place called Wiriamu, where Portuguese commandos have killed about 150 um, African villagers. So it's that classic, yeah, you know, sort of colonial peacekeeping by shooting, shooting people that has just gone horribly, horribly wrong. And this is terribly embarrassing for Caetano. And there's a lot of um, stuff in the British press, which he finds, you know, he's very cross about it and all this. As he, he wants to move the regime um, to a slightly more liberal i mean you could you couldn't get less liberal but he wants to slightly liberalize it so slight gorbachev-esque a tiny bit he eases press censorship they have the first um independent trade unions that they've had since the beginning of the estado novo since the beginning of the regime there's a lot of rural workers who've been shut out of sort of peasants basically who've been shut out of social security and he he says let's give them a pension so these kinds of things yeah you know, he wants to show that he's a new broom but there are two, I mean, apart from the colonial wars, the 1970s is an age of very high inflation because of world commodity prices. So, you know, everybody's under tremendous economic pressure. Then you have the 1973 oil crisis. Um, and, and basically what happens is that blows him completely off course. And the hard liners in the regime and the army and so on, 
they put pressure on him to abandon a lot of these reforms. They they swing back towards double down to be yeah to being reactionary. Now, there's one reform in particular that is absolutely fatal for the regime, and it's kind of not what you would expect. So obviously, the colonial wars, the army has expanded. And it's very, very expensive. And um, Portugal doesn't really have many friends left because it's fighting these extremely nasty colonial campaigns. So it's getting sort of advice from Rhodesia, from South Africa, from people like that. Not from the CIA. Because that's a stereotype, isn't it? That in the 70s, wherever there's a colonial war, shadowy CIA operatives. And we we talked about that in the, or maybe we haven't yet talked about it, (laughs) in the Uruguay episode. We did. And in fact, the CIA, or at least the Americans, will come into this story later on. But I don't think it's so, I mean, it's actually not the Americans who are the key players at this moment. It's actually the Rhodesians. So the breakaway white separatist regime, white sort of supremacist regime in Rhodesia, because they say to Caetano, um, it it is very expensive fighting colonial wars. Yes. One way you could do it is actually um, bring into the army and promote, you know, you don't have to go through all this incredibly rigorous training. And you can promote people who've just been in the militia. So people who have maybe served abroad, they've done a, you know, you can give them, uh, you can treat them as regular officers and promote them and build them up and stuff without having to go through all the expensive years of the military academy and all of that kind of thing first. Kurtanis says, great, what a good plan. And he passes a law in the summer of 1973 to do this. Now, the issue with this, and it sounds like such a sort of boring bureaucratic thing, but the issue with this is that in Portugal, there are an awful lot of people who couldn't afford to go to university. And so what they would do, they they would enter the military academy, and that was their way up. That was their way to status and so on. So there's a whole sort of generation of young officers who, for them, being commissioned as an officer after undergoing all this training was a real badge of status. It was a source of great pride for their families. And they see that their positions and their careers and their prestige threatened when the government is just sort of handing out promotions willy-nilly to all these people who've purely been in the militia. So there's intense discontent within this sort of whole generation of young-ish officers who think, God, I work really hard for this. And they're just throwing, they're just, you know, handing them out like baubles. So by the end of 1973, there's a, there's a group of junior officers who are thinking, you know, this is rubbish. This, I, I'm really cross. The old men have sort of betrayed me and all this sort of stuff. And once you've got that going on, once army officers are kind of meeting to, to say this kind of thing, that's very dangerous for your regime. In dark glasses, presumably. Well, I think some of them were wearing dark glasses. Some of the older ones were wearing dark <laughs> glasses, Tom. So you get the, this group of what they're called the captains. People call them, so they're kind of quite junior officers, and they become known as the MFA, the Armed Forces Movement. And they start to, in their middle meetings and stuff, they start to say, listen, we should get out of Angola and Mozambique. This is a complete disaster. It's a nasty war. We're clearly not going to win. We should have a new start, you know, new regime, maybe have elections, get rid of the secret police at home, all of these kinds of things. And some of these officers um, have connect have sort of left-wing ideas and left-wing connections. The Communist Party is still there. It's gone underground, but it has still been there all this time. They also have a figurehead. They have a, there's a guy called General Spinola, Antonio Spinola. Now, he is quite a conservative figure. He's in his 60s. Amazingly, he had been a military observer at the Siege of Leningrad in the 1940s. Blimey. Yeah. Goodness. Um, with the Germans. Yeah. So he'd That been- seems very out of time. Well, I suppose it is quite out of time, isn't it? But yeah. Um, yeah. So- He'd been the commander in Guinea-Bissau 
in the late sixties. And he said, Oh, this is an absolute disaster. You know, this is not a, this, these African wars are, they're terrible for our international reputation. Loads of our boys are dying. It's incredibly expensive. We're not going to win. And he wrote a book called Portugal in the future when he came back saying, let's get out of Africa. This is a disaster. He is fired in early 1974 by the regime for doing this. And that again is a great error because it gives these grumpy captains a possible figurehead. They've also got a, a chief strategist who we'll, we'll talk about a lot in this podcast. He is a great character. He is a man called Colonel Otello Saraiva de Carvalho. And everybody just calls him Otello. Othello, Tom. His name Ooh, is Othello. Yeah. But he's not black. Well, he had been born in Lorenzo Marques in Maputo in Mozambique in 1936 to Luso Goan parents. So parents who were sort of Portuguese Goa. The Portuguese colony. Exactly. Gets taken over in the 60s. And he's called, they call him Othello. So in his very name, there's a kind of a hint of a kind of Portuguese colonial history. And he had served in Guinea. He'd served in Angola. Bizarrely, he'd been photographed weeping over Salazar's coffin. In, when Salazar died in, in 1970. And were these, were these crocodile tears or genuine tears of grief? It's very hard to tell, Tom. He has a very interesting life. And basically, at the end of this podcast, his life will take a very unexpected twist, which I think you will enjoy. Can't wait. Um, he's a great... As you do strictly. Exactly. <laughs> That's actually worse. Um, okay. He's a great excited. showman. He's a very theatrical figure. And by the early 70s, Otello has become very, very left-wing. And he's the sort of guiding figure. He, he basically... He's a colonel. He gets all the captains together and he says, listen, we should have a coup. You know, enough is enough. We should get rid of the old guard, new regime, get out of Africa. So the coup is planned for the night of the 24th and 25th of April, 1974. And it starts in a tremendous way. It starts with two songs on the radio, which are the signals to the captains. So the first song, Tom, you'll be delighted to hear is Paolo de Carvalho's song, E depois do adeus, a song I'm sure you know well, because <laughs> it was Portugal's entry in the 1974 Eurovision Song Contest. Okay, but presumably that would be played quite a lot on the radio, wouldn't it? Well, it's at the particular time. It's the combination of the two songs, you see. Oh, I see. So that's played... And it's only the one channel then. It's uh, not like this kind of, hello and welcome to Eurovision FM. No, there are multiple, there are multiple radio stations. You have to be listening. Listen, I, I'm the coup planner. Okay. All right. The coup people have clearly got loads of radios <laughs> listening to. You see, I would choose a less obvious, a less obvious track. Well, it's not a very successful Eurovision entry because I, I checked. It came 16th <laughs> and it got only three points. <laughs> Okay. So maybe it wasn't being played very often out of shame. Who knows? <laughs> Staying on national honor. So at 10.55 in the evening, that is played on uh, Lisbon radio. Because they've already taken it over, have they? Or do they have a kind of, they have a friendly DJ? They have who... a friendly DJ. They have contact. They have contacts <laughs> in the DJ community. So then a few hours later, 20 minutes past midnight on a different uh, radio station, Radio Renaissance, uh, Renaissance Radio, Tom. Um, on Renaissance Radio, they play a song called Grandola Villa Morena, this sort of lament, Grandola it's called, Grandola is a place, and it's by a, a sort of protest singer, a folk protest singer called Zika Afonso, very left-wing kind of, who toured Portugal singing these. Yeah, because these are not the songs that you'd associate with a, with an army coup in the 70s. Eurovision really. and then a sort of folk, a, a very mournful folk ballad. Well, we know that we know from our previous podcast, we did one episode, didn't we? We were talking about Fado, 
The Portuguese love a very mournful song. They do. Yes, they do. So the mournful song is played, and this is the sort of the cue. So they've got this particular guy who they said, you lead the troops into Lisbon. He's a guy called Salguero Maia. And he's a, he's a captain. He's the son of a railway worker. And he assembles all his troops and he gives a famous speech. And he says, gentlemen, as you all know, there are various forms of state. There are socialist states, there are capitalist states, and there's the state that we are in. And in this <laughs> solemn good. night, we're going to put an end to this state. So anyone who wants to come with me, let's go to Lisbon and let's finish it. And they all volunteer. They pitch up in Lisbon at the government quarter at about six o'clock in the morning. There's then a sort of scene, there's, a, there's a, a little bit of shooting, but not, not actually that much. The government, Caetano and the other government ministers, they hole up at a barracks at the Largo do Camo in the sort of center of town, and they're surrounded by these troops. Most government forces go over to the rebels. So the rebels have it kind of all their own way. Uh, so Salguero Maya, who's the captain, the railway worker's son, he's leading his men, and he's addressing them on a kind of megaphone and all this. Caetano says... I'm not going to surrender to you because uh, you're a mere captain. He says it would be like throwing my power into the gutter to surrender to a captain. So they go out and they get that old general, the guy from the siege of Leningrad, General Spinola, because he's got the right rank. He pitches up. He accepts the surrender of Caetano. And the government ministers are all led away. And actually, it's pretty bloodless. So is that the coup? We'll never do a podcast with more coups. Okay. this episode we should no we, reach we, stage should, where we should take a break no no because you've underestimated the number of coups in the oh uh, god i've planned for i've planned the break <laughs> it's it's all it's very exciting so okay yeah so only four people were killed that day and they were shot by the secret police the the crowd as is always the way when these things happen great crowds poured into the streets and they assembled outside the headquarters of the secret police the pid shouting and roaring and stuff the secret police fired at them killed four people but by and large by the standards of coups this is very very bloodless and actually these are pretty much the only people who die in the whole of this podcast now the thing that becomes the symbol of the of this sort of se semi or nearly bloodless revolution are the carnations flowers now why does this happen well salguero meyer and his troops when they're sort of going through lisbon they pass a self-service restaurant called sir which was celebrating its its one year anniversary that day. The story goes, and there, are, I mean, this is there is some debate whether this is a slightly apocryphal story that the restaurant had decided that for its anniversary it would hand out flowers to everybody who came for lunch. Nice. But because yeah. of the coup, lunch is cancelled, so they've just got all these flowers on their hands. And uh, one of the sort of waitresses, who's called Celeste Cairo, she's a left wing sympathizer, and she basically is got our arms full of all these red and white flowers and she thinks oh i'll give them to the soldiers so they put them in the muzzles of their guns oh yes that's very 60s behavior or their, yeah or their tanks and so there's and more flower sellers get, come and give them flowers and there's there's flowers everywhere it's lovely there is some suggestion this may be a bit of a myth that's been that's been that's been exaggerated after the event which is a shame i, I think we should go with it yeah of course we should For go the with purposes it. of this episode of course we should go with it so the coup has succeeded caetano that's the end of him he's flown to madeira to start with and then he's flown off to brazil brazil has a dictatorship so basically anyone who wants to go to brazil they go to brazil so he just hangs out there he hangs out in rio de janeiro and dies of a heart attack in 1980 and that is the end of him 
So, okay, so we can park him. We can forget all about him. Okay. Now, the guy from the Siege of Leningrad, General Spinola, he was sort of intended to be a vague figurehead for the coup, but not really the main man. But because Caetano wouldn't surrender to a captain and would only surrender to a general, Spinola is suddenly in the, in the limelight and he thinks, great, fantastic. So he actually becomes the new president of the Republic. So lots of broadcasts with him, flags behind him. Precisely. Gold braid, cap. All that stuff. Yeah, All that stuff. Exactly. Classic post-coup behavior. And also very classic post-coup. He's the head of something called the National Salvation Junta. I mean, or I suppose they would say Junta in uh, Portugal because they pronounce the J's. Anyway, so you've got to have a, a Junta or a Junta in the 1970s, haven't you? And Spinola thinks... He's quite conservative, even though he thought get out of Africa. He thinks, great, I'm now in charge of Portugal. We'll just be a bit more liberal. Let's crack on. Everything is great. But within days, the revolution, as is always the way, spirals completely out of control. Portugal has been asleep for basically 50 years and suddenly within days wakes up in a very dramatic way. All across the country, you have workers who are taking over their shops from their bosses. You have all these peasants on the great estates in the Alentejo in the south of Portugal, the Latifundia. People say these are literally the Roman agricultural estates that have been preserved almost untouched. They haven't been enclosed. They haven't been divided up. They have massive landowners who treat their peasants very badly. And now the peasants are occupying them, taking the land for themselves, all of this kind of stuff. Even hospitals... You have sort of junior staff kicking out the bosses of the hospitals, kicking out the senior doctors and saying, we're taking over, we're in charge now. This is all about the revolution. So within weeks of the coup in um, the spring of 1974, Portugal is spiraling out of control. Nobody knows where it will end. In Washington, D.C., people are looking at this and saying, Portugal is the new Cuba. This could be the beginning of some kind of domino effect through Western Europe. Because the head of the head of state is quite right wing. Yeah, the the captains are quite left wing. Yes, but now the mass movement is very left wing. Yes, you know who knows where it's going to go, Tom. And on that cliffhanger, now I think we should take a break. Well, that's very exciting. Yes, you were right to wait, and I apologise for trying to hurry you. No, no, um, we will be back to find out what the denouement is in this dramatic tale. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Thank you. 
Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are in Portugal and we are, uh, Dominic is taking us through the Carnation Revolution. Um, and in a way, this is a, a, a coda to the four-part series we did earlier in the year on Portugal. Dominic, take it away. Okay, so when we ended the first half, Portugal was in chaos. A man called General Spinola was in charge. The, there were all these left-wing captains. Who knows where it's going to go? So General Spinola, actually, do you know what, Tom? I've at, I, mean, I said he was at the Siege of Leningrad, but I've actually undersold him. He'd also fought in the Spanish Civil War on General Franco's side. Okay. And he wore a monocle. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very Tintin. Yeah. So he's a tremendous character. He watches all the occupations and stuff that I was talking about right at the beginning of the first half. And he says, well, this is, this is not what I bargained for at all. This is very bad. And he says, um, right, I need to bring in somebody, sort of prime minister, who will calm everything down. And he he sees a bloke who's going to be a, a, a new character for us in the second half, Tom, who's called Vasco Gonçalves. Now, Vasco Gonçalves, I should come to <laughs> in a second. He's a splendid figure. He's very entertaining. He's this sort of very gaunt, sort of tall military man who's from a very rich background. So Spinola thinks this, this guy will be great. You know, he'll be a bulwark against the radicals. This doesn't happen at all. Vasco Gonzalez immediately says, right, we'll get out of all the African colonies, decolonize straight away. Now, Spinola, bizarrely, having written that book saying, let's get out of Africa, he's alarmed by this. And he says, well, I didn't mean all Africa. I think we should actually keep on to Angola. So they fall out. Spinola decides, I'm going to organize a new coup, get rid of the left-wing captains. He organizes this coup in um, September 1974, and it's a complete disaster. Basically, nobody turns out for him. So he's the president, but he's organized a coup against his own government. (laughs) (laughs) And it hasn't worked. So he's forced to resign. That's the end of him. And what happens to him? Well, for a while, he lurks around (laughs) in Portugal for a few months. So he doesn't get sent off to a... No. Not yet. An education camp or anything. Not yet. Because in March 1975, so what's that, about six months after his last coup, he tries another coup. It's very Tintin. So the 11th of March 1975, he tries another coup. That doesn't work either. So he's he's tried a coup against a government that he's the leader of. He's tried a coup against the successor government. Yeah. Uh, At this point, he decides he's going to go to Brazil as well, like the person that he's... Hang out with Catano. Right. And um, yeah. He actually, in Brazil, he, he tries to set up a, a thing called the Liberation Army of Portugal. He then goes incredibly right-wing. Right. He tries to set up an extreme right-wing paramilitary group. <laughs> so so a right-wing dictator is a left-wing dictator who's had two failed coups. Yeah, yes, I guess so. I guess so. So that doesn't work out at all. That's the end of him. Let's forget about him. So you can cross him off your, your list. Okay. All right. So now, who's in charge of Portugal? Well, basically, there are two people I think you need to... To worry about so one is otello so othello yeah. we talked about him before yeah while all this has been going on he's gone off on a little trip to cuba would you believe he goes to cuba he meets fidel castro and this is what the cia are worried about yeah precisely and he is absolutely delighted to meet fidel castro he says that this is that castro is splendid i can't get enough of this he comes back so otello who had you know he remember in the first half he was weeping over salazar's coffin yeah in 1975, five years after he was doing that, he comes back from Cuba and he says, listen, the Cubans have got the right idea. We should scrap all political parties. <laughs> we should have revolutionary councils <laughs> instead. That's the path to Portuguese happiness. Let's do that. So he's lurking around and he's got all these plans. He's the sort of face of the revolution. The other person 
is that bloke who I mentioned, Vasco Gonçalves, this sort of gaunt man from a very posh background who Spinola had brought in, but had disappointed him. Vasco Gonçalves is, I found, I mean, I know this is a ludicrous source to be quoting in this podcast, but this is a bit from the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> the Daily Telegraph obituary said, a gaunt soldier with a history of depressive illness and taste for badly fitting clothes and political rhetoric, he held, as one of his own colleagues put it, quote, the sort of Marxist views you would find in a rather immature university student. Born into Portugal's prosperous middle classes, he also possessed a considerable fortune, which remained miraculously immune from the expropriation he ordered for others. So basically, Gonçalves comes in, very rich family, he's very left-wing, in this sort of slightly, uh, dare I say without alienating my audience, a, a slightly Jeremy Corbyn way. He right. says, right, we're going to nationalize everything. Nationalize the banks, insurance, petrochemicals, fertilizers, tobacco, cement, wood, iron, steel, breweries, shipping, public transport, radio, glass, mining, fishing, and the agricultural sector. Now, there are two parts of the, there are only two parts of the economy that are immune, that are not touched by his nationalization plans. And they are foreign exchange, so changing money, and construction. And by this miraculous coincidence, his father runs a foreign exchange firm right. in which he has a large shareholding. And he also is the manager personally of a massive construction firm. So right. this is not sort of, uh, this is not a terribly good advert for the revolution. And do people know this at the time? Yeah, they do know this. So people are grumbling but, about yeah. it. So Portugal, which has been asleep for so long, is in utter chaos. So across half a million people have fled to Portugal from the African colonies. Yeah, but the Portuguese have sort of done a Belgium. They've, they've treated their colonies pretty badly and then suddenly said, right, we're, right, we're going. Goodbye. And presumably the guys who are coming from the Portuguese colonies, are they very right wing in the way that... I think some of them are. Some of them feel terribly betrayed, exactly. Meanwhile, in the south of Portugal, in the Anatejo, in these huge sort of farms, agricultural laborers have seized the farms or they've been confiscated and have turned them into collective farms. So about 2,200,000 acres worth of the Anatejo have been taken over by their own workers. Meanwhile, the government is giving some to the workers, is trying to give some back to their owners and trying to kick out the workers. It's a complete and utter shambles. And what's what's the role of the um, of the Soviet Union in this? Any? Um, that's a good question, actually. I, I'm sure they are hovering a little bit. I mean, the Soviet Union are definitely very interested in the Portuguese colonists, so in Angola and Mozambique. But in Portugal itself? In Portugal itself, I don't know. I think it's more actually... The, the Communist Party, I haven't mentioned the Communist Party, so the leader of the Communist Party, a guy called Alvaro Cunhal, he had been in exile and he had come back. And he's, he's a, again, a very big player in all this. His activities are reported all the time. A lot of people think that he might end up being the beneficiary of all this. And he is an out-and-out card-carrying Stalinist. You know, he's of that generation of sort of, you know, affiliated foreign communist leaders who are completely loyal, who are more Stalinist than the Stalinists, basically. So it's perfectly possible that this whole confused, chaotic story could have ended up with him in charge and Portugal veering wildly to the kind of mm -hmm. pro-Soviet left. Now, meanwhile, Portugal is a complicated country because the north is quite different from the south. And in the north, there are no big farms. The farms are much smaller. And the north is much more conservative. So that's around Porto, the Douro Valley, all that kind of stuff. And there, there is a massive backlash against the revolution. People start firebombing kind of communist or left-wing party offices, 
and and that's where a lot of the the British that's right port port families are based. So is there is there MI is there MI six involved? I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think Taylor's, Dow's, Graham, <laughs> Cockburn's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think they're all they're all piling in. Well, I'm not saying that they are, but 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 presumably the British government feels that Britain has a stake in. Yeah. What happens there? We will come to Britain, Tom. You'll be delighted to hear there is a role for James Callaghan in this story. Oh, wonderful. No, I don't know about the British. I do know about the Archbishop of Braga. I know what he said. What did he say? He said, this is, uh, this, this is a struggle not of man against man, but it's a struggle of Christ against Satan. <laughs> yeah, well. So, I mean, you'd expect that from an Archbishop, I suppose. I kind of like that language. Do you? From, from bishops. I think that's how they should talk. I absolutely I c- could not agree with you more. Do you hear that talk from Justin Welby? You do not. And I think that's a weakness. I, I would like to hear more of that kind of language on Thought for the Day. Yeah, it's humanist. It's all humanist now on Thought for the Day, isn't it, Tom? Yeah. Sorry, we're spiraling into golf club. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that Caetano and his men were saying in Brazil. Thought <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for the Day. Portuguese Thought for the Day is not what it was. They've got all humanists on. It's terrible. <laughs> Bring back Salazar. Now we're in the summer of 1975, and there's this kind of absolutely crazy factionalism. I know you have a horror, Tom, of acronyms. I do. There's billions of different political oh, parties. Can we with just acronyms. cut all that? There's, there's anarchists. There's communists. Simplify that. Skip all that. Well, I am. This is the simple. This is the simplified version. Okay. What do you mean? Okay. I just don't. I don't want any acronyms. Abroad, people are now looking at this with real anxiety, and they think, particularly that guy Otello, who's come back from Cuba, absolutely fired up. They think he's going to launch some sort of new coup. <laughs> you know, yet another coup. Yeah. And Portugal will be the Trojan horse. It'll be the sort of vanguard of communism. So. um this is what Time Magazine said on the 11th of August, 1975. It said, The troika of generals that has just assumed unlimited power in Lisbon could well transform Portugal into Western Europe's first communist nation. It might well be an orthodox Marxist state, as envisaged by one of the continent's few remaining Stalinist bosses, Alvaro Cunhal. The New York Times, as we often say, Tom, never wrong in its reporting of uh, <laughs> international affairs. A communist takeover of Portugal might well encourage a similar trend in Italy and France. And presumably at this point, the New York Times wasn't in favour of that. No, no that's right. <laughs> that would come later. Yeah. Affects the succession in Spain and Yugoslavia and send tremors through Western Europe. So recently declassified US State Department documents show that the CIA were sending money to officers in the army who are not so left-wing, so officers who worry that the revolution is gone out of control. And to the Archbishop of Braganza or whatever it was? Uh, Archbishop of Braga, I don't know. Braga. He's, getting, he's getting money from God. He doesn't, he's not, doesn't, doesn't need <laughs> to worry about the CIA. Um, there's also a document from the 15th of September 1975 that shows a discussion between Henry Kissinger, Helmut Schmidt, very much a friend of the rest is history. Yeah. And another friend of the rest is history, James Callahan. And they agree that if there is a full scale civil war in Portugal, Britain and America will send arms to anti-communist forces and send them aid because Portugal cannot be allowed to fall to the communists. And Kissinger, Henry Kissinger is a, is a great sort of, um, we have never really done much about Henry Kissinger in the rest is history, but you can't have a kind of 70s cold or hot spot without Kissinger popping up. But, but Kissinger is a bit of a hysteric, I always think. Kissinger, part, uh, not, hysteric is probably a bit unfair, partly because of his own personal background, you know, fleeing Nazi Germany and so on. He fears disaster at every turn. And he sort of thinks, oh my God, Portugal is going to go communist, Western Europe is going to collapse, all this kind of stuff. And actually, 
his State Department sort of juniors who know Portugal quite well, they say to Kissinger, you know what, actually, it does look very chaotic and stuff, but the Portuguese are actually pretty conservative people. And we reckon it's going to be fine. Don't do anything. You know, don't start sending in CIA men yeah. with dark glasses and kind of homemade yeah. torture kits. You know, just <laughs> yeah. hold off for a little bit because we think it'll be fine. They are talking to a group called the Group of Nine, which is a group of military officers. The Group of Nine, honestly. Yeah, I, I know. Mean, I know you didn't want an acronym, but that's not an acronym. <laughs> no, the group. I'm a f- sinister sounding Dan Brown type. <laughs> Secret societies, I'm fine with them. So the group of nine are actually not very sinister. They're quite centrist. They're centrist dads, Tom, like you. Oh, are they? Yeah. (laughs) Right. That's disappointing. They say uh, we reject either sort of right-wing stuff or left-wing stuff. We support a model of socialism based on democracy, pluralism, and human rights. What's not to like? So that's very kind of, that's very primary school, you know, assembly kind of, uh, it's your kind of politics, basically. Yeah, white bread. So, <laughs> anodyne. So, amidst all this, Vasco Gonçalves, the prime minister, the gaunt man who's nationalized everything but his own businesses, um, <laughs> yes. he starts to sort of crack under the strain and he gives a speech, a famous speech, Tom, in Portuguese history on the 18th of August, 1975, in which he starts sort of shouting, rambling wildly and says, the capitalist countries want to, um, they're trying to put the Portuguese working class. They're, trying, they're treating them as stokers for the boilers of capitalist Europe. And then he goes on to this, this huge rant. I've actually watched it on YouTube. Now, admittedly, I watched it in Portuguese, which, to tell you the truth, I don't really understand. So all I saw was a man in the shirt sleeves who looked very like an open university lecturer from the 1970s just shouting at some students. But right. clearly this had a great effect on people because most Portuguese people thought he's gone completely mad. You know, he's, he's lost the plot. So it's a left-wing academic having a rant yeah basically so it's it's like twitter (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah exactly that it's basically do you know what i i in in my own sort of as it were real work i wrote about the polytechnic of north london in the 1970s where people were always giving rants about imperialism you know uh, all this capitalism blah blah, history man yeah very the history yeah it's just like that his his rant is just like that but he's the head of state you are, no, he's the head of the government. Sorry, head of government. Who's the head of state? Another random general called General Costa Gomez. Suddenly, Costa Gomez, like a tortoise from beneath his shell, emerges. <laughs> sprinting. And sacks Vosco Gonçalves. And everybody says, oh, my God, they've sacked the big man. This is civil war. This is going to be civil war. So by the end of August 1975, early September, Basically, Portugal is not working as a country. There are great mobs of people like shouting in the streets all, all the time. Soldiers are occupying random buildings in Lisbon, sort of TV stations. Uh, they're having rallies. They're all, there's actually an amazing account of this, which gives you a sense of the sort of utter chaos of it, by Ben Pimlot, the biographer of Harold Wilson, who as a very young man, as a student, I think, went over to Portugal to see what was going on in 1975. And he wrote a journal of the Portuguese revolution, which you can find in Ben Pimlock's book, Frustrate Their Knavish Tricks. And it's, to my mind, it's actually the best essay because he wrote it when he was very young. And what it completely captures is that sense that you get in revolution. So you actually also get it in, have you read, a guy called Colin Jones wrote a book about the last day of Robespierre's life and about the end of the terror that came out about two years ago. I've got it right here. I've I've got it right here. And he wrote it in the present tense. Yeah. 
what's great about it is that unlike most accounts of the French Revolution, it doesn't assume the narrative. So it captures the complete uncertainty and chaos and the way in which all kinds of contingencies could have played out differently. But that's what it's like for me. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, this is what it was like. This is what it's like when you read Ben Pimlot's journal, because he's he describes how he just travels around Lisbon and he goes from kind of occupied building to occupied building. Students, revolutionaries, anarchists, right-wing officers, whatever. Everybody's sort of occupied something or holding a rally. And absolutely nobody knows what's going on. I mean, they're a bit like you in this podcast. They don't know who anybody yeah. is. <laughs> it's just a complete confusion of names. <laughs> I'm waiting for the group of nine right. to, to strike. Well, this reaches its culmination in a very kind of Termidor kind of moment. So people have been, they've been waiting around. They've been waiting around to strike, just like you. Yeah. Ben Pimlot's been waiting so long, he actually goes home. So his journal ends <laughs> before the kind of climax. Because um, he's, I don't know, his return ticket has yeah. run out of validity or whatever. He's got to go and cover the Labour Party conference or something. Exactly. That's probably what it is. Yeah. But on the 25th of November, Otello decides to make his move. And he sends paratroopers to occupy some air bases. And was like, oh my God, the coup is happening. It's on, it's on. But at the same time, his opponents... That later that day, they launched their own counter coup. Is this the group of nine? Yeah, it is the group of nine, Tom. Brilliant. It is the group of nine. Everyone is piling in. They're yeah. all launching coups on this day. <laughs> yeah. And actually, what happens is that Otello's men are overpowered. But no casualties? And then this is the thing. There are no casualties. That's amazing. So after those four people who died on the very yeah. first day, basically nobody really has been killed. There's been no fighting. And I was thinking about this because when we did our Salazar podcast, we were talking about Salazar and his authoritarianism. And we mentioned in that how actually the death toll figures in Portugal under Salazar's admittedly extremely repressive and pretty unpleasant regime, the death toll figures by the standards of 20th century regimes are pretty low, you know, a, a few hundred maybe, if you put aside the, the colonial wars. And I wonder whether the fact that Portugal actually, by 20th century European standards, had had a pretty quiescent kind of stagnant history, whether that plays a part in all this, because people are most likely to be violent when they're frightened of violence against themselves. Mm. And what because it's never started, it never does start, if you see what I right. mean. It's an extraordinary thing that nobody dies. There's an incredible lack of violence throughout all this. So this 25th of November 1975 coup, this is the real turning point. Basically, Otello had launched this coup. This was his chance to be the Castro. There are no shots fired. He's just rounded up and put into prison. And a new guy who had been a key figure in the counter coup, you don't have to worry about him, Tom, we won't talk about him very much, Antonio Romalio Ianas, he becomes the big man. He gets the support of the Socialist Party, so sort of centre-left rather than hard-left, and centre-right Social Democrats. He's Macron. Uh, I think that's a pretty weird parallel, but... Um, but he's kind of centrist. Yes, I guess he's kind of centrist. So Artello comes out of prison after a little while. They have an election in 1976, presidential election. Uh, Romalio Ianish wins 62% of the vote. Uh, Otello wins only 16%. And he gets all that from the Alentejo, from the areas, very poor, very rural, where peasants had occupied the big farms. And with that, after all this chaos and all this confusion, with that, it's as though they've pricked a balloon and the air just completely mm -hmm. seeps out. And then Portugal joins the 
the EC. Exactly. Um, and the rest is history. Well, there's another presidential election in 1980. Again, the same two. This time, uh, Romalio Iannis wins an absolutely stonking majority. Otello wins only 1%. Oh. So I said to you that his career would end on an interestingly <laughs> interesting trajectory. He's very disappointed by all this because in 1975, well, he had clearly thought, you know, he yeah. was going to be the master of Portugal. He does what everybody does when they've lost in this period. He, he becomes involved. He goes even further to the extreme and becomes involved with the sort of terrorist paramilitary group. So he sets up a group called the Popular Forces of the 25th of April. The 25th of April is the sacred day, the Carnation Revolution, when it all kicked off. They do what sort of left-wing terrorist groups do in the 1780s. They organize bank robberies and bombings and stuff like that. Kidnappings of children of industrialists. I don't know if they did do any kidnappings, but, but they did actually kill 14 people in their, okay. in their bombing. So there is some, some death toll later on. Yeah. Um, he is put in prison. Eventually he's caught Otello. He, I mean, it's a weird thing because he's kind of the face of the revolution that the Portuguese celebrate to this day, but he then has kind of disgraced himself. He's put in prison. And then in the 1990s, he's given an amnesty. But this may give you some sense about why his political career didn't turn out as successfully as he had hoped. He is a man of a, with a degree of unreliability, Tom. Right. Because he, by the time he was imprisoned, he was married. But he met a, a prison, a female prison warder in the, <laughs> in the prison right. whom he also married. So he, he, he was a bigamist. Right. And he lived with his original wife when he on his release from Thursday to Sunday. And then he would go and live with the other wife, the prison warder, from Monday to Thursday. And was she still a prison warder? That's a good question, actually. I don't know. I don't know if she was still working <laughs> at the prison. That would be very weird, wouldn't it? Quite odd. Yeah. He, well, two other things. Um, you asked if he was on Strictly. He wasn't on Strictly, but he established a sideline appearing in erotic films. <laughs> so, so okay. as a as quite an, a sort of, he must have been what? He was born in, I think, the late 1930s. So he's in his 60s, 70s by the time he's appearing in these porn films. I suppose if you've got it. He was in a film called The Failed Revolution, which I haven't seen, but I read online that it involves him, and I quote, nuzzling a woman on a floor strewn with carnations. Oh, so this is this is the erotic film? Yeah. It's, it's not a documentary about... About the revolution. About the revolution? No. But it nods to his revolutionary past because it has the carnations. Yeah, and when course. he's nuzzling, as the, the yeah. thing describes it, there are carnations present and perhaps the revolutionary symbols and stuff. And then the, the group of nine burst in. <laughs> it's, yeah. Unexpected twist. And um, anyway, he was very disappointed by what happened to Portugal. He died only last year, Tom. And uh, do you know what he said before he died? Um, let's have a coup. He said, uh, Portugal needs a good financial manager, a man with intelligence and honesty like Antonio Salazar, just without the fascism. <laughs> God. So he'd gone full circle. He had. He'd gone absolutely full circle. Meanwhile, Portugal had become, you know, after that sort of crazy two years, just became a completely, you know, successful, incredibly successful, prosperous uh, member of the European Union. So it all ended happily. Very, I mean, everybody kind of got, he got two wives. He got to appear in yes. the erotic film. Yes, yes. Yeah. Loads of people hanging out in, in Rio. Yeah. Which I'm sure, you know, worst places to be. Yeah. In dark glasses, kind of moaning about humanist thought for the day. And what happens to the group of nine? Well, they ran, they basically, they, they, I suppose they set the, you love the group of nines. 
I, well, did they have kind of handshakes and <laughs> secret codes and things? I don't and, think they do. I don't think they oh. do. I think they maybe they still get together and they kind of you know <laughs> yeah. drink a toast to Henry Kissinger or something. Yeah. Um, anyway, they they they're sort of moderate officers and they're kind of the I guess the moderate center of Portuguese public opinion. They basically set the tone for the rest of um, right. Portuguese history. Well, wonderful, Dominic. Thank you very much. So now we've done we've done the whole of Portugal, haven't we? We've done the whole of Portugal from the Carthaginians up to the erotic film of Otello. <laughs> well. Brilliant. What a story. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Dominic. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And obviously, we'll be back tomorrow with more of this stuff. So we'll see you then. Bye bye. Bye. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com that's restishistorypod.com hi rest is history fans if you want more tom holland in your life and frankly why wouldn't you i have some good news for you i'm emily dean and i'm thrilled to say that this week tom is a guest on my podcast walking the dog where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because i talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog raymond And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.